Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Sweet Country, a western set in 1920s Australia. Hamilton Morris stars as Sam Kelly, a middle-aged Indigenous Australian man who must go on the run after killing a man in self-defence. It's a gritty and rather slow-moving drama illustrating the violent racism of the period, co-starring Sam Neill as a sympathetic and compassionate white preacher, and Brian Brown as the local police officer sent to catch Sam Kelly as he flees into the outback. And this is a Patreon request from Jez. It's a really interesting uh, episode for us to do. We like a Western, and it also kind of ties in with an earlier Patreon request we did about Quigley Down Under, which is basically as different as you can get from this film in terms of tone, but it's also an Australian Western um, that kind of touches on real history in a very different angle. But kind of before we go any further, we've got a note from Jess on kind of language in this movie, which we both found very helpful. So the message says, uh, a language side note as non-Australians, and most white Australians tend to fumble with this, Aboriginal is the word you use to refer to a collective First Nations experience, but refer to individuals by language group when possible. Um, Indigenous is okay, um, but there is a level of contention around it. And obviously black is also used often as a self-identifier and to describe the function that anti-blackness has in the treatment of Aboriginal folk in Australia. Um, So in the context of this movie, obviously there was several um, Aboriginal characters and their language isn't really specified in the text of the movie, but also there's obviously actors and the director of the movie whose background is clear because they're real people and I've kind of discussed it in interviews and have Wikipedia pages. Yeah, I just thought it would be useful to read that out at the top because I found that really helpful and educational as someone who's obviously not Australian. So um, we will attempt to use all the correct terminology and apologies if we don't. But my background obviously is with in terms of sort of language and understanding this stuff is from the American perspective. And obviously there's a lot of commonalities between the American and the Australian experience here, which we will discuss in terms of this sort of cinematic background, because this movie draws so much on American Westerns. But there is also a very specific sort of historical and cultural thing going on here, which the director Warwick Thornton talks about in interviews, which I found pretty interesting. He was very explicit about saying this movie is for Australia. (laughs) It was going to international festivals. And obviously, he was very pleased by getting received well there as any artist would be like you want people to like your movie. But he was like, yeah, the point of this really is to be seen in Australia, though. Like, that's what I made this movie for. And it's so that this history can be sort of grappled with and discussed at home. And it was also, you know, very well received by critics in Australia um, and won a bunch of awards, sort of like the Australian version of the Oscars, I believe. Yeah, anyway, I just thought starting off with that would be a good idea. And this movie was in fact requested specifically to, you know, counterbalance the Quigley Down Under episode. It's taken us a few months to get there, but we we have arrived. I loved this movie. I thought it was great. I was surprised I hadn't heard of it before it was requested because it did do quite well at festivals in 2017, I believe, but I don't think it got much of a release in the United States. I'm sure it got some, but um, the director Warwick Thornton, his debut film came out around 10 years ago and it was called Samson and Delilah. And that I do remember coming out and I remember wanting to see it and I just never got around to it. And like, I 
recognized the poster for sure when I looked it up. And this one just didn't seem to have the same impact, even in kind of indie film circles, which is curious to me having seen it. I mean, maybe I just totally missed it, but I was really, really impressed. And, you know, I had some quibbles with it, which we'll discuss, but in general found it really effective artistically and politically and wondered why it didn't get talked about more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd heard of it, but like I hadn't really kind of heard heard people discuss it in an artistic context. I think mostly I'd just seen it in discussions of like movies that were contemporary Westerns and have different angles than the original classic Western. I think I liked this less than you did. Um, I definitely recognize that it's a good movie and it was, it kind of introduced a lot of themes and ideas, both like kind of in terms of Australian history, which I don't know much about and kind of as an alternative to traditional Westerns, but I did find it quite slow and, you know, I, I kind of would have preferred there to be like a bit more depth of characterization in the main leads, but we can we can discuss that. I mean, I think we should start out by talking about the director and also talking about the Western genre in general, because while everyone knows about Westerns, who knows how much people have thought about like what are the underpinnings of the genre and what does it mean and how people are changing that now? Yeah, do you want to give some background about the director? Because I've already talked. Cool, cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he is a cinematographer and he shot this film, uh, which it was very interesting to note because the film looks amazing. He's clearly very good uh, um, at using the camera. He's Kay Ditch. He is one of the few Indigenous filmmakers working in Australia right now. And kind of he's talked in a lot of interviews about the film's connection with the classic Western setting. Um, there was one quote that I quite liked where he was kind of describing the 1920s outback setting here and he was like, um, they, as in the people who lived there, the white people who lived there, they did have guns, they didn't shower very often, there were no women and there was no law, which pretty much summarises the setting of this movie. And he's kind of using that framework to kind of look back at this very wild time and place. And it very much fits into like so many classic Western elements while also being this like really hard hitting and clearly quite revolutionary film. The impression I get is the Australian film industry is largely very white. And like Britain, there was a lot of denial about the kind of colonial history. Well, it was really interesting for me to watch this quite soon after having watched the 1979 film My Brilliant Career, which also stars Sam Neill looking uh, very young and attractive. (laughs) great movie it's based on a novel written by i can't recall her name but it was like a teenage girl in australia wrote this book at the end of the 19th century and it was a sort of big sensation and it the film was adapted from that book and it's very much in the tradition of these kind of 19th century novels so of course i enjoyed it on that level but it's pretty surreal to watch because it's very much a film that takes place in Australia as the book, which I have not read, obviously does too. But there is no discussion or like recognition at all of the fact that this is a colonized country. It's drawing way more on like English traditions of storytelling from the 19th century in terms of the marriage plot troubles and like people in big rich houses and like female main character doesn't want to have to conform to living in these sort of saltified upper class, you know, spaces. And I, again, I think the movie is really good, but you're watching it and you're like, what, (laughs) what the fuck? Because it just completely ignores 
the central thing, right, that was going on, which, again, many American films have also done this, but it just really stuck out to me. And again, I like that movie. I think it's really good, but it just misses this big thing. And these movies don't really have anything to do with each other. It was just interesting to me to happen to have watched them really close together because this movie is takes place around the same time period and is doing exactly the opposite where it's forcing the viewer to have to actually deal with the sort of reality of what was going on historically in a way that is quite upsetting. I agree with you about some of the sort of script stuff. I think it's a little bit thin at points, especially at the beginning, but um, I think especially by the end, it gets, it, it becomes very effective. But talking about the Western more broadly, um, this is not a genre that I have historically loved so much. I've not seen very many of the classic ones because they're very racist. So I just remember like when I was a teenager, my brother, my younger brother was really into sort of classic Westerns. And I just remember I would like come into the room and my brother would be like sitting in front of our PC computer, which was the only place you could watch movies in my house. And he'd be watching, you know, something where Clint Eastwood was just like squinting into the distance. And it would just always be like two hours of Clint Eastwood squinting into the distance. And I was like, I can't be having with this. Um, but I have seen plenty of Westerns. And in fact, it was very interesting to watch this movie shortly after there's this new film called News of the World starring Tom Hanks, which is like an extremely kind of straightforward, old school Western where they've kind of attempted to touch upon some political themes because it's set shortly after the American Civil War but like that those elements are a bit ham-fisted and it's extremely kind of centered around a white perspective while also being like a little bit modernized to make it more palatable and I was just like these films are very different and while I found uh the Tom Hanks one easier to watch it was not a better film. (laughs) Well I mean, when I say classic Westerns, I'm thinking less of the Clint Eastwood ones, which are very, which in some cases are Italian, but then the ones he made were very influenced by the Italian spaghetti Westerns, which is not a genre I know very much about. Most of what I know about those movies is like filtered through the lens of Quentin Tarantino, Um, but more about like the really like 30s and 40s, like traditional old Hollywood Westerns like The Searchers. John Wayne, lots of John Wayne, and lots of, like, very kind of cheerful westerns as well. I mean, I haven't seen very many of these movies. I I haven't actually seen The Searchers. From what I understand a bit, I do not think cheerful is probably the word. No, not that one. (laughs) No. (laughs) But John Wayne certainly was the big guy, but, like, Gary Cooper and Jimmy Stewart were in a ton of them. I have seen one called oh, Destry something. It's kind of a parody Western from 1939 starring Jimmy Stewart. So like already there was a sense of like it as a genre that could be parodied pretty early, right? But it's inherently a colonialist project, the the Western genre, which is not very interesting to me. I do, I feel like we discussed this before on the podcast. I'm always like, I need to watch some of these movies because that period of Hollywood is my thing and it's part of the history of that part of, cinema um but i just don't i just am not that into it however i love a lot of the more recent western films that hollywood has made kind of as a response to those movies which get kind of critical of them i have mentioned 1000 times on this podcast the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford which i think is a masterpiece the one that i found myself thinking about a couple times watching this 
was the film Slow West, which stars Michael Fassbender and Cody Smith McBee, I think is his name. And that it's about like a Scottish boy who somehow makes it to the American West because the girl he's in love with has fled there with her father and he's like, I have to find her and marry her because I just love her so much. And Michael Fassbender's like, sure, I'm gonna follow you and uh like he's he's gonna double cross it. There's a lot it's involved. But it's very much sort of undermining the tropes that we are all familiar with, even not having seen a lot of these old movies because they're so embedded in the culture. And there are a couple of scenes in this movie that felt very reminiscent of Slow West. They came out about the same time, so I don't think that like, I think it was just coincidence, but um, they're playing on similar things. Slow West is much more fun <laughs> than this movie, although it's also ultimately kind of brutal. But there has definitely been kind of a resurgence in the past 10 years or so, I would say, of this kind of film. Not that there are so many of them, but it's obviously something that filmmakers are interested yeah. in. And obviously partly that's because, like, the original films they had like a very conservative political viewpoint because like the the iconic premise of a Western is kind of about white men who are probably anti-heroes, but potentially more heroic, who are, you know, going it alone in the Wild West. And it's all these sort of survivalist fantasies. And there's lots of shootouts. And sometimes it's sort of like a, you know, heroic, victorious ending, but sometimes it's tragic. But either way, the focus is all on sort of this American view of sort of tough masculinity and... It could, they famously like erase all of the people of color who were in the Wild West, you know. There's a lot that wasn't going on in those classic movies, and a lot of the kind of more recent films are like Baccarat is one we I talked about a couple of a couple of years ago, which I absolutely love, um, which is a Brazilian kind of neo western. And there's like the Mexico trilogy, obviously very famous movies, Brokeback Mountain, you know, Meek's Cutoff, which is all about women. There's lots going on in terms of neo-Westerns kind of trying to broaden that scope and also be a bit more kind of modern in their outlook. Yeah, Meek's Cutoff, which is a Kelly Reichardt movie, is not a movie that I love, but she's definitely doing something interesting in it. And even First Cow, which was one of the big movies of 2020, it's sort of border a borderline case, I would say, because it takes place in the Pacific Northwest, so it doesn't have a lot of the signifiers, like the visual signifiers of the yeah, Western. Yeah, it's too, it's too like, wet to be a Western. Exactly. <laughs> but thematically, there's a lot of similar stuff going on in terms of trying to sort of strike out on your own and like the perils of capitalism um, and just the sense of like the newness of the country, which I mean, she's extremely aware of that as a sort of fallacy, right? But she is someone who actually has like lives in New York and has basically her entire life, I think, but pretty much all of her movies take place out West. Um, That's fascinating because if you told me she lived in a ranch, I'd be like, yeah, of course she lives in a ranch. (laughs) Yeah. But she just seems to, get it. So there's a lot of sort of interesting stuff going on, but those are all American films. Slow West was made by a Scottish filmmaker, I want to say, I can't remember his name, but obviously it takes place in America. Although I think they might have shot it in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, the thing about kind of the Western genre is like, also, as you said, a hell of a lot of classic Westerns are Italian, as is the music, like the most iconic, (laughs) the most iconic Western music is Italian. It's now become like a universal genre. Anyone from anywhere can make a Western and it's not cultural appropriation because you're taking like the dominant (laughs) form. Whereas this is the opposite. Like you, you want this to be made by an Aboriginal filmmaker and 
like this movie, you know, the general structure is going to be very familiar to anyone who knows anything about Westerns, but like even the kind of the introductory scenes, it introduces you to a scenario that non-Australians will not be aware of. And indeed, apparently many white Australians also not aware of, which is kind of the class structure between the main characters. So it's set in 1929, which obviously means it's set between the world wars, which is kind of important because it's kind of showing how much poverty there is just in rural Australia at this period. And also several of the main characters will be World War One veterans and are clearly suffering from that psychologically as many people were. And the main character, Sam Kelly, um, and his wife and his niece are all working for a preacher played by Sam Neill, whose name is Fred Smith. And it's just like a small kind of rural house. And it's not really clear kind of what he does. It's just sort of odd jobs. And it's also not really clear what his economic relationship with him is, like to what extent he's being paid. But the very first scenes make it really clear kind of what the political dynamics here are, because Fred and Sam have clearly a relatively congenial relationship. Uh, Sam is not particularly, he doesn't talk a lot, like he's clearly a very quiet and reticent person, but they immediately, right at the beginning of the film, there's this kind of standoff where this other white man, Harry March, who's played by an actor named Ewan Leslie, comes to visit the preacher of Fred Smith's house and he needs help at his own kind of house and is like, oh, can you like lend me this man? And, you know, it's 1929, so there is legally no slavery, but definitely the implication is that any Aboriginal people in this scenario are second-class citizens and are functionally being treated as slaves. Like you see people, you know, being chained up and beaten and it's very brutal in this film. But that kind of tells you what the dynamics are like right out the gate. And then we kind of go to another house and we see this other white man who has kind of some Aboriginal employees, including like a young boy who's like 12 and a much older man. And there's kind of, there's a lot of like different attitudes to people's work and lives there but basically every single person in this movie is incredibly miserable for a variety of reasons and are kind of executing their misery upon other people Um, but kind of the key conflict comes when um, Sam and his wife are sent off to kind of help this guy Harry March who immediately starts looking at their kind of underage niece in a very creepy way and that kind of results in Sam's wife who is played by an actress named Natasha uh, Gory Ferber, she is raped and it kind of seems like she is surrendering this to protect the daughter but it's this very disturbing scene where she's in the house doing housework and the white man Harry March kind of comes into the house and slowly like closes every door and window in this really ominous and threatening way and you just like while you're watching this you're like oh does she not like know what's going to happen and you realise of course she does and like she's basically she knows there's no way to like fight back or get out of this situation and you don't see anything it's like intentionally all filmed in the dark and it's quite a short scene but it's just very disturbing um, and I think it was like a, a smart creative choice from the filmmaker who um, judging by interviews was very uncomfortable with the subject matter you know he didn't want to film anything on screen which I think is a you know good choice. Um, and that's kind of setting off a great deal of trauma and contention right from the gate. But um, later on, due to like a kind of more typical standoff where Harry March kind of comes to their house and is all threatening, Sam kills him in self-defense. And that means that the couple have to go on the run across the outback. I thought that rape scene was really effectively shot because if he'd actually shown it, it would have been too much. But sort of on the other hand, having to listen to it also felt horrible. So so it's still bad, but 
it's sort of just up to the line of what you can kind of take as an audience member. And she doesn't tell her husband that this has happened. It kind of comes up later. But um, I found the the treatment of sexual violence in the movie pretty interesting because technically there are, I think, four female characters in the movie. Two of them don't really speak. The niece doesn't really have lines, I don't think. She's just kind of there. And then there's, like, the matron of the saloon in town who is exactly that. There's She's nothing abs- else really wearing the dress and everything. Absolutely classic. <laughs> yes. And then she has a daughter, and then that daughter doesn't really talk either. She's just kind of there. So functionally, there are really only two female characters. Who's that? Ma- the, the wife of this sort of main character who is the one who gets raped, and then this saloon woman. And I think they're both a bit underdeveloped, which was too bad because the vast majority of the characters in this movie are men, and, like, that's fine. This is obviously a very male environment. (laughs) But I kind of wished that there had been a little bit more something given to the women. I mean, I was basically fine with the saloon character because that's the sort of stock character that's fine in this scenario, but I really did feel like the wife was quite thinly characterized because this is a genre where where it's, like, not particularly talky apart from towards the end where there's a scene that necessitates a great deal of talking. So it's fine for protagonists in this genre to really be, you know, very reticent. But the wife character, Lizzie, she like doesn't really talk, but like in terms of her reactions, she's very self-contained and also clearly traumatized. But like her personality is very thin on the page. And they're obviously, they're working with an actress who I think, I'm not sure if this was like her first film, but like she's a relatively inexperienced actress. And that's like a difficult type of role to play where it's like she's extremely convincing in performing this experience of trauma struggling while being on the run but I was like what are her character traits and there was another element which is her husband finds out about the rape because she becomes pregnant and I was like what because the timeline because it seemed seemed like they'd basically (laughs) be on, on the run for about a week and later on right at the end they reveal that the initial rape took place three weeks ago and I'm like even at three weeks like, they have her having morning sickness after, like, a week. And I'm like, no. no. no this no. is extremely basic information. You cannot have her. Because it's, like, that's the sort of thing that happens in sort of a very fantastical movie where you need sort of, like, you know, the good old coughing into the handkerchief, like, fake tuberculosis illness, where it's kind of like, oh, we know she's pregnant because she's throwing up now. And I'm like, when you're, like, one week along, that is completely meaningless. Like, there's not even, like, a cell. <laughs> um, which I realise is a gripe, but, like, it's such an obvious gripe that I feel like it should be easily solved. <laughs> Yeah, I was very annoyed by that. I was like, come on, this is just foolishness. However, I think what happens at the end of the movie, which I don't quite want to get into yet, but there's a sort of... We'll discuss spoilers at the end. There's plot machinations that have to do with the rape at the end of the movie that I thought was handled incredibly well. And that made me kind of think that the director had more of a grasp on that than I had necessarily thought for the rest of the film. Not that I thought he was like wildly insensitive or anything, no. but I was like, well, does he totally get this? And then at the end I was like, oh no, he, he does. It's just that this character is kind of underwritten, which was a little bit frustrating. I felt the first half an hour of this movie, that was where I felt it was slow. I feel like he really wants to give you a sense of like what normal life is like for these people before the murder happens and then the plot really kicks off. And I 
recognize the value of that. Like, I understand why he wants to show all the dynamics between these people, but it did feel a bit slow to me. And that felt like it could have been tightened up a little bit. And I think in general with the filmmaking, the movie looks beautiful. And I'm always really impressed by directors who shoot their own movies. It just seems like wild to me to have both those skills. Like, it's it's very cool. But there was something a little bit stiff about it. I was trying to figure out how to articulate this while watching it. Because the movie is obviously really good. And as I said, I really liked it. And we'll be articulating more of the reasons why I thought it was great as we continue. And, like, it looks good. But it felt almost a little bit like he had, like, storyboarded the whole thing out really carefully before shooting any of it. And I have no idea whether that's the case. Well, that's interesting that you say, because he did do that. And it was because it's so difficult to shoot, like, on the out, like out in the outback on a really yeah. low budget. So, like, he was working with not very much money. And he basically was like, this all has to be planned extremely meticulously. <laughs> yeah. That totally makes sense. I think the effect of that is that it does feel a little bit too controlled in a way. And obviously there are plenty of directors who have a very like rigid style and it really works. Like, I mean, Wes Anderson, right? But like the content that's inside the frame is not Wes Anderson-esque or whatever in this, right? Like it's just a, a ranch or something. And so there's some, it just felt a little, again, I don't even know quite how to articulate this because it's not like it was bad or it looked bad. There was just something that was not quite like 100% there. It would be really interesting to see what a movie of his that was made with a bigger budget would look like, or just like with a bit more experience, because obviously this is a guy with a ton of talent, but there was something that was just like a tiny bit lacking for me. And the screenplay too... The first half, like, there's so little dialogue that, it, again, it felt a little bit like something was lacking, although I was engaged. But I found the second half of this movie, and especially the kind of last act, like, so good that I was like, well, great. <laughs> I, it's fine. Like, all my reservations, I'm kind of okay with that. The one other thing I would say is that you mentioned there are sort of two farms that film kind of goes to at the beginning, owned by sort of shitty younger white men who are not Sam Neill. And I absolutely did not realize that those were different people until it 22 minutes. It also took me a minute because I was like, these are <laughs> these men do look a bit similar. <laughs> they look the same. They have both been, I looked them up and they were both on top of the lake. And I was like, it's too much. Like they're just have, they both have mustaches and brown hair. And I don't usually have this problem. I normally am really good at faces. And I was like, it's the same dude. Like, I just, ah. they're both acting like assholes. They're both wearing hats. I don't know. So that was confusing to me. But then I figured that out and it was fine. There were kind of a couple things that the movie didn't explain immediately or that I found confusing. And I always then caught up with it. Like everything did become clear eventually. And I kind of couldn't fully decide whether as a strategy, like all of that was okay. Or whether maybe the movie had sort of missed something and could have made all of that a little bit clearer. But again, by the end, I fully grasped everything that was going on. So obviously it ultimately worked. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what you were saying about the sort of the like rigidity of his filmmaking in some ways, there was an interesting quote I read um, in this interview on a website called Seventh Row, which is kind of how he shot it to sort of emphasize the idea of property and borders. So the question is, so much of 
how Sweet Country is shot really emphasise the idea of property and um, the way it's shot from people's verandas or through the bar from across the street because there's like small town scenes where you see stuff through the bar window. And Warwick Thornton answers, people don't step off their veranda. It's their domain, especially the colonisers. They walk to the edge of their verandas and they look out. So I tried desperately to stay on the veranda with them as their point of view in their world. With the indigenous people in the film, they're always off the veranda. They're not allowed on the veranda of the house. So their point of view is in the desert looking at the house, um, which I found really interesting because it kind of, I didn't notice that consciously in the film, but there's a really obvious recurring motif of kind of shooting from behind people's feet while they're sort of pacing along their porches and their verandas. And he also shoots everything slightly below the eye line so he's always like looking up at everyone rather than having a bird's eye view or like even kind of shooting slightly above the head which is interesting it's like very real and he was doing this intentionally so he always had sort of a sense of respect there are also not very many close-ups in the film i noticed especially i think of the white characters i would have to watch it again and like keep you know keep track on a piece of paper to be sure of that assertion but the close-ups I can remember, the like, you know, real close-ups as opposed to like medium shots, are of the sort of like well, there's a long scene near the end where the camera is really close on Hamilton Morris, who plays the main character Sam Kelly's face, and then there are quite a few close-ups on um, the face of the young boy Philomac, who is played by twins, um, Tremaine and Trevon Doolin which I had no idea watching it. <laughs> no. Very good twin performance. Wow. Um, he said in an interview, which I thought was great, like one of them was more outgoing and one of them was more reticent, as twins often are, especially as children. And so this little boy character, he's not a pickpocket, but like he's got sticky fingers, he steals things all the time. And uh, so he used the one who was more outgoing for the scenes where the boy was stealing stuff and like causing trouble. <laughs> and then for the scenes where he was getting getting in trouble and being yelled at and had to just stand there and sort of take it, the quieter one was the one who had to do all those scenes. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Excellent directorial decision making. But there are a lot of close-ups of that character's face. I mean, in some ways he has like the most emotional journey of the characters, right? Because like the whole point of the main character is he is like, he's late middle age. He's like maybe in his fifties and he has had a great deal of experience with the world and is not a big talker and is dealing with a horrible situation where he can very clearly see how the situation is going to end for him and his wife. Whereas the kid is still learning from the people around him and you see kind of the stuff he picks up from people and he's very naive but he's very quickly kind of being molded by just like horrible experiences you know he's being beaten all the time he's getting chained up he's like learning to disrespect people and you kind of have this like almost kind of paternal relationship with his employer who like there's occasional flashes like moments where the white guy who is his boss like occasional moments where you can see this guy like getting a sliver of like sympathy and maybe feeling a bit guilty about how badly this kid's being brought up and then it just vanishes because obviously you know he's an incredibly racist environment so well he is his father no oh there's a line i thought that, that was metaphorical i thought that that was the implication oh, okay. and he is the boss is not acknowledging 
this, right. obviously. But I found that that child just such an affecting character because yeah. he's kind of stuck in between these environments, right? There's an older Aboriginal man who also works for the same white guy who I also found really interesting. Who's He just kind of goes along to get along. Like, he's just very agreeable. <laughs> To the white guys who are in charge, but then to the little boy is very frank about the situation. It's not like he's bought in to this power structure. He's just like, well, there's nothing else I can do, so I'm just gonna be agreeable, right? But he says to this boy, like, you're never gonna be a white person, so basically deal with it. And says that he was taken from his country when he was a little kid and sort of brought to this place and has just been sort of stuck here for his whole life. But this kid, he doesn't have a sort of ancestral homeland that he remembers because he's just been on this fucking farm for his whole life. But obviously he's never going to be accepted as a white person either. And so he's kind of just in this weird in-between space. And the environment where he's in doesn't really allow for him to go to one direction or the other. And I thought the writing of that dynamic was really, really smart. And the both kids who play that child do a really good job of expressing the sense of just kind of like wanting approval, but yeah. also ambivalence about it, you know? I wish I had picked um, up on that uh, element because <laughs> it was like, it makes, it makes so much sense now, the kind of paternal elements of that relationship. Yeah. I, I yeah I get just the last note on that kid I I really was impressed by those two boys because they I think they do a really good job of acting and they never feel like you know child actors yeah they just feel like one kid I had no idea that it was two until I read the interviews but that felt like a really important component of this story to me technically he's involved in the main plot because he kind of runs off from the real nutcases farm harry march who's the one who gets murdered and that's the reason why they kind of run off yeah. looking for him and then he gets killed but he's more in the movie for these thematic reasons as opposed to like major plot it does so much for the story yeah and as with so many westerns it is technically a crime drama but like the difference between a Western and a traditional crime drama is the idea of investigation is basically non-existent because there's just one person who's absolutely sure they've got the right man. And depending on the angle of the Western, they either do or they don't. <laughs> and in this case, um, obviously we know who killed Harry March, but there's like different views of why that killing occurred. And so you have this veteran Australian character actor, uh, Brian Brown is playing the sheriff, who's this uh, just old, grizzled, obviously quite racist white man who's clearly a fixture in the local town. And he he is wearing one of those outfits that is always truly horrifying to read about in Australian history, where like there's just like a 200 year period where loads of sort of military and uniformed white people who are colonizing this massive continent, it's like they're all wearing like sort of thick woolen, like blue coats. And I'm like, you're going to die of heat stroke. And if you can't change your outfit, you probably deserve it. So he's like sweating disgustingly while he's chasing people around. There's no kind of conception of finding out what really happened or what people's motives are or like even figuring out who else was involved there, like Philomac being there, until kind of the final quarter of the film, which is kind of turns it a bit into a courtroom drama. 
Um, although they do not have a room, it is a court case that takes place outdoors. So um, I think we can talk about that ending now, which is, of course, spoilers for those who have not watched the movie yet. Yes. Before we do that, should we mention Sam Neill? Oh, yeah. We haven't really <laughs> talked about. Yeah, I love Sam Neill. He's an incredibly prolific actor. You will all know him from uh, Jurassic Park, but like he's had this amazing career where he's been in basically every genre imaginable. He does plenty of B-movies. He does like corny family comedies. He does weird art films. He does indie dramas. He does everything. And he seems to be interested in working with like a variety of filmmakers and a variety of styles, which I really respect, um, without making things too hard on himself, which I also respect. And he has for many years now just lived in a vineyard. It just sounds like he's having a whale of a time. He's got a very nice Twitter feed. And it was nice to see him in Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi a few years ago. Great movie. Yes, his Twitter feed is truly a joy. He names all of his farm animals after ex-co-stars. So he keeps posting about his chicken, Kate Winslet, who recently had chicks, which I just love. And his picture on Wikipedia is him holding up a glass of wine, which again, I mean, what a what a dream. Like, um, But uh, yeah, he his big breakout was... My Brilliant Career, which I was mentioning earlier in the episode. And uh, he also starred in The Piano, one of my favorite films of all time, playing a truly unappealing character. I mean, just deeply, deeply awful, which is what I think I first saw him in. And so I really had to work to get that out of my head with Sam Neill. And he clearly is lovely in real life, but he's very convincing as someone who is not. But... um. I think his character in this movie is really interesting because he's playing a, I mean, they don't specifically say he's a missionary, but like effectively he's a missionary, a Christian missionary. And he's the most sympathetic white person in the movie by far because everybody else is just like heinous in a pretty straightforward way. But he's also completely ineffectual. Like the, I don't know, the film is kind of showing how like the other people in his vicinity don't have any respect for him. And what he's doing basically has no impact. Yeah, I found some good quotes from the director who was talking about casting him that were very sweet. And he described him as the foundation of the New Zealand constitution, a beautiful human being. And he says the character is, Fred is kind, but slightly naive to his surroundings and the world he's grown up in. He has this romanticism that God will provide. That's Sam Neill. And I feel like that says a lot about the character. He says he also has this consummate ability to play any character and his face is so kind and his voice so beautiful and warm that he was just perfect for the character. <laughs> I was like, I do love Sam Neill. <laughs> I agree. But in other interviews, he's talking about the sort of role of Christian missionaries in the colonization of Australia and was saying sort of interestingly and correctly in terms of just like the role of Christian missionaries everywhere really is that they actually did a lot of good things in the sense that the people who were not missionaries just murdered everyone right and the Christian missionaries did not do that they were working to provide services for people but the flip side of that is that your culture gets erased right so and also like in many places, like church missions were really involved in stealing children, taking indigenous children and then raising them 
under the colonized culture. Yes, which also happened in America, of course. Warwick Thornton went to a Catholic boarding school as a teenager, which, according to Wikipedia, he did not like. That's the that's the extent of my information imagine, on that. Imagine hearing about someone who enjoyed going to a Catholic boarding school. I, I'm yet I to literally hear, they, they must exist, but I'm yet to hear someone whose origin story was like, I loved going to a Catholic boarding school. <laughs> but I think that the character in this movie is pretty interesting, and I think there is a sort of there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Christianity in the text of the film beyond just like this character specifically. So he is clearly well-intentioned, but also very naive. I mean, the biggest giveaway is when Harry March, the, you know, worst white man comes up and is like explicitly saying things to him about how he thinks that aboriginals are like subhuman basically and he still agrees to have them go yeah and like help him out of because the farm he's a because... complete pushover like his personality trait yeah. is that like he will do stuff if it kind of goes along with his ideals of being like helpful and it's like you're helping this guy but like you're not helping sam <laughs> yeah but it's clear that he he wants to believe the best of everyone it is well-intentioned it's just that he doesn't get it and he also kind of goes on this journey throughout the course of the movie to being disabused of this notion yeah i I think in terms of the framing crucially the difference is that while we have all seen a million movies especially historical movies about racism where there's like the good white character which is in fact the premise of quigley down under the more sort of crowd-pleasing australian western we reviewed a few months ago the point of those characters is to be ahistorical and to make white people feel good and to give white audiences like a point of view character that they can go oh this person's nice and I sympathize with them and maybe that's how I would have been in that scenario and that is kind of their narrative function is just to like have a have like a pleasant feeling and that is not the purpose of this character even though they are very explicitly the good white character like you don't watch Sam Neill in this movie and go like how admirable (laughs) yes well I mean he does feel historically realistic yes that's the point yeah and he's not heroic. He's not even on screen that much. I mean, he's in the movie for sure, but it's not like yeah. he's... A little Samuel goes a long way. <laughs> yes, for sure. But the Christianity thing, the main character, Sam Kelly, there's a scene where the law enforcement guy, whose name I can't remember, uh, the you know investigator or whatever, is pathologically searching for him because he just has to find him and he winds up in these salt flats and is just i mean clearly going to die because he's an idiot and he's like wandering around these salt flats in the heat and has no water and sam kelly walks over out of nowhere and like drops a you know canteen of water on him and he does take his guns when he leaves but there was something very Christian about the like the way that he was shot walking up to him like the sun is coming from behind him and he's this sort of angelic figure and also the decision to save his life at all right where she has multiple chances to kill this guy throughout that whole sequence and he chooses not to and the decision that he and his wife make to go back to town and turn themselves in they explicitly are like Maybe this whole God thing 
Like maybe it's actually right. And we've survived so far. And also she's pregnant. But like they have a conversation about Christianity effectively. And like they know they didn't do anything wrong. So they're going to give themselves up to have a trial essentially. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, that doesn't work out. <laughs> the whole like turn the other cheek thing, it does it it doesn't work. But I think the movie has this sense of like the appeal of those ideas, right? But ultimately they're kind of empty, which I found pretty interesting. But we can talk about the trial now. Yeah. Um so obviously the kind of the film culminates in them giving themselves up, going to the town where they are very obviously not well received by the rabble of horrible white men who reside there. Um, But they bring in an out-of-town judge, who's this rather young man, who is clearly a bit more by the book and is also kind of horrified and disgusted by their surroundings. And I think also, like, towards the end is the point where the time period really becomes clear, because obviously, like, if you've read a description of the film before going into the movie then you know it's set in the 1920s. But because it's such kind of a kind of a rural setting and because the clothes are very non-specific, it could really be like in the middle of the 19th century and it wouldn't functionally make a great deal of difference. Like the only really major kind of period signifier is that there's a lot of corrugated iron. <laughs> um, uh, but then kind of towards the film, you get these two things. You get, there's a scene where they're watching a film projected outdoors, which is a film of the Kelly gang. So you're getting this ironic scene where all these people are like cheering on an outlaw. And then you get the kind of court case where there's this guy who is probably more used to being in like urban Australia in 1929 and shows up here and is like, holy shit, this place is like wild country. This is is a disaster. Like he's clearly concerned that he's about to, like he's about to see a lynching take place. And he actually does do some like relatively decent sort of investigating during the case where he wants to actually hear everyone's perspectives and kind of brings everyone in to explain what actually happened in the shooting of Harry March. Well, th- what you say about the time period is right, because I definitely thought it took place earlier until they started projecting the film. In retrospect, all this stuff about the like veterans, I was like, oh, of course, they're World War One veterans. But I think the, the saloon ladies dress confused me. Yeah, it definitely it looks- doesn't look like everything in the 1920s in movies is all like, everyone was a flapper, which of course, you know, you know. <laughs> Again, the fact that they're showing the Kelly Gang movie is perfect. I'm not as familiar with that whole mythology because I'm not Australian, but that's obviously just like the romanticization of that person and that whole story is ironic, to say the least, and particularly perfect for this movie. And then for my Letterbox star ratings, I had this movie at a three and a half until we got to the trial and then I was like, oh no, this is like, this is great. And I just thought that that trial sequence was so unbelievably smart because the judge comes in and as you say, he's he's more effective than you're kind of expecting to the degree where I was like, you know, at first I was like, is this like, is he too effective? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> because he clearly does want to actually be fair and the people in town are not interested in this. But when he starts questioning Sam Kelly and his wife, he gets very, very frustrated by the fact that they're not answering his questions in the straightforward manner that he would like them to be answering his questions. And he gets very impatient and imperious with them. 
in a way that I was like, oh, I yeah. I get it now. And it's like, why would these people know what a court case is? Like, that is, like, <laughs> there's no courthouse in town. Yeah. And they, he kind of figures out that there was some kind of problem with a sexual assault with this guy. And tries to ask the wife, who's name i can't recall about it and she literally just has her head down on her knees and she won't say anything yeah. and this is taking place in front of the entire time yes yes and he asks her a couple questions and then it's just like this is getting nowhere to take her away and in fact that's not actually the like skeleton key to unlocking this whole thing because sam didn't find out about that until after the fact but it does reveal information about harry march's you know state of mind and personality that he's a rapist and he, instead of trying to get to the bottom of this he's just like oh get rid of her this is annoying and then when he's talking to sam kelly specifically he's so he keeps being like you have to answer my questions you have to answer my questions or else we're gonna lock you up we're gonna lock you and your wife up and it's just the same thing it's just in a different and more sort of like polite form right and he does wind up ruling in his favor but the whole process is so degrading. And it's the only part of the movie where there's a lot of dialogue. And as I said, I found the dialogue in the rest of the movie not like bad, but there's just not that much of it, which isn't always a bad thing, but it did feel like that it was kind of a weakness of the movie that it was a little bit thin. And I thought the dialogue in this part was so smart. And specifically to do with the sexual assault, which I was alluding to earlier, it clearly becomes... They kind of figure out something has happened, but then they want, there's this like purient desire to know all the details, but then they can't quite decide whether they believe it because like, did they ask, or he asks, did anybody see it happen? And so it sort of becomes twisted into this like, well, did this really happen or not thing, which is of course totally typical. And even though she doesn't have as much of a personality as I would have liked, I felt like the way the movie depicted how that experience, when it becomes public, gets just kind of like, like twisted in such an ugly way away from the person who actually had the experience. I thought, and like wrapped up in all of the, this racism and colonialism, I thought it was handled really, really intelligently in a way that I found quite harrowing. Yeah. No, that's not quite the end of the movie. Do you want to say what happens right at the end? Yeah. Um. So kind of tonally, the fact that he gets off in this trial is very surprising given the atmosphere of the rest of the film and everything we've learned so far. And also there is kind of towards the beginning of the trial, it seems very likely that he could be lynched instead. But he does get away and he and Sam Neill and Sam's wife and their niece go off in a cart out of town, at which point someone shoots Sam, uh, Sam Kelly, and shoots him dead, um, just as vengeance for the white community, and that's that's essentially the end of the film, uh, which is a, uh, you know, a very upsetting end, and also extremely plausible given the circumstances at hand. It's heavily implied that it's the cop, right? Or whatever his official title is. Yeah, the like. I, I mean, narratively, he's the the sheriff. I think in terms of title, he's the sergeant. But you know, whatever, because he's been very, I mean, appalling the whole time, and then all of a sudden, is like, 
no, no, justice has been served, and then rides with them out into the country, and then sort of leaves, and then all of a sudden there's the, the shot. So I, I inferred that he was the, the responsible party. It's the perfect ending to the movie, and also just, like, completely brutal yeah. and upsetting. And, uh, yeah, I just, it, endings are really hard in this one. I was like, oh, well, you nailed it. I, I mean, and I'm upset now. We also haven't mentioned, I don't think, that this is based on a true story, sort of loosely based on a true story, which was the the sound recorder of the movie, his grandfather killed uh, a veteran, a white veteran of who was in World War One, And it was a big to do as this movie displays. It would indeed have been. But uh, I guess he told Warwick Thornton about the story and wrote a sort of very rough draft of the screenplay. And then it evolved from there. Yeah, it's a guy, a guy who was kind of known as Willaberta Jack in 1929. Yeah. The amount of history that has not been sort of spoken about or depicted in art for sure. And you get such a sense from the interviews of this sort of sense of responsibility, I think, yeah. from Warwick Thornton to do that, which I do think is a little bit of a weight on the movie. Not even necessarily in a bad way. I just, I often feel like when a marginalized group finally gets the opportunity to start telling their own stories, you get movies that are kind of like, here are the important stories that we have to tell to like make you understand what's going on that haven't been told before. And then once there's more sort of equitable access, then you get more variety. But that's kind of like a necessary yeah. part of the process, right? That like this kind of thing has to be made. And I think it's a really, really good example of a movie like that. I would highly recommend it to anyone. So next week, we will be discussing the John Cassavetes film, Opening Night, which uh, co-stars Gina Rollins and John Cassavetes, amongst many other people. We did a film starring John Cassavetes last year, Mikey and Nikki, but I have never actually watched a film directed by John Cassavetes. So this is going to be an educational experience. An icon. An icon of American cinema. Yeah. I loved Mikey and Nikki so much, and this has actually been requested by the same patron who suggested that one. So, um... I'm really looking forward to watching this. So that is rentable anywhere if you want to, you know, do your homework in advance. But uh, yeah, going back to 70s America next next week, a great decade for cinema, if not for history. If you want to support us and or listen to all of our bonus episodes and commentary tracks, including a track we did recently for Titanic, you can do that at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabby, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.